The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now, your host, Scott Walker. Right now that time, 819. You're listening to WGNS again on this Monday morning. Today is the 22nd of May. And so far, it looks quite nice outside. Our guest today will be from the VA hospital. And starting off the first part of the program, we have Dr. Olaja Day with us this morning. And how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Well, good. And I understand you specialize in rheumatology, and you are there at the Nashville VA Hospital, and uh, you're also an assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. Yes, that is correct. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you, I guess, first of all, in that direction of medicine, and then what landed you at the VA? Right. Uh, Thank you so much, Scott. Yes, I am originally from Nigeria. I um, originally wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, actually, because I love working with my hands. But um, when I left Nigeria, I spent some time in the United Kingdom uh, where I wanted to pursue orthopedic training. This is where I got really exposed to rheumatology, especially rheumatoid arthritis. And um, hence, my interest was... uh, kindled. I immigrated to the U.S. uh, 24 years ago. I trained on Long Island in New York, worked for four years in Arizona, 13 years in West Virginia, and moved to Nashville uh, this January. I have always appreciated what our veterans have done for us, and working at the VA is one way of uh, giving back to those who have given so much for us. And then when you talk about rheumatology, there are so many different diagnoses under rheumatology that I bet a lot of folks don't even realize. Uh, one of those being things like fibromyalgia. That's one of many, but there's just it, it, such a long list. Yes, um, you're very correct about that. Uh, I like to think of a rheumatologist as a doctor's doctor. Um, we have many conditions that we uh kind of the line of last resort, so to speak. And it's interesting you mentioned fibromyalgia because um, this is a condition that um, has many facets and rheumatology is not the only specialty that can help take care of patients with fibromyalgia, but we get to take care of them and we're happy to do so. And, and then another big item, which, of course, is big because Gout Awareness Day is actually today, May 22nd, but gout is another one of those things. Yes, absolutely. So gout is a big deal. Um, approximately 9 million Americans uh, have gout. Uh, about half of people with gout are not even comfortable uh, speaking about their condition. So unfortunately, it's just about a third of patients uh, who have gout who receive treatment at this time. So a day like today, Gout Awareness Day, gives us a fantastic opportunity to spread the word and um, help uh, manage uh, a condition that is very treatable. 
And, you know, I've heard so many stories over the years of patients who have had gout and it may started may have started off in a way that they thought they broke their foot, maybe even broke a toe. But that was not the case at all. It was gout. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up, that um, gout is an exquisitely painful condition. And um, the analogy of a broken bone is very apt. People go to bed many times, no symptoms at all, and they get woken up in the middle of the night with this excruciating pain. Uh, like you mentioned, it is akin to, you know, breaking a bone. So from zero to 60 miles an hour in no time at all. And it's so hard to believe that it's something such as gout uh, can feel or come across as actually having a broken bone when it's not at all. Instead, what exactly is going on inside, let's say, for example, the foot, because we're already talking about that. Yes. So gout is an inflammatory. It's a type of inflammatory arthritis. So when you have inflammation anywhere in the body, but since we're talking about gout, um, when you have it in the joint, um, some of the signs are the pain, of course, that we've talked about, there's swelling, there's redness, there's warmth, and if you can imagine the joint as having a capsule when you have an acute attack of gout, when you have the inflammation, fluid builds up very rapidly within that capsule. So you have that enclosed space rapidly filling up with fluid, so that is one of the reasons it is so painful. And, and it sounds very painful indeed. And some folks even have to resort to crutches or even a wheelchair for the time that they do have it. But the good news is it doesn't typically stick around forever, although you may get it some weeks and some weeks you don't. So talk a little bit more about that. Yes, that's a very good observation. So as you rightly mentioned, gout attacks, acute attacks of gout are actually self-limiting. So they can go on for several days, sometimes last into weeks, um, but usually each attack eventually abuts itself. But because it is so painful, we can manage it much better. So there are two ways we approach the treatment. Number one is obviously someone who has so much pain that they cannot even put weight on the foot if it is the big toe, for instance, that's affected. Um, so you want to manage that. Someone who does a physical job, they obviously will be out of commission for the time the attack lasts if it's not promptly treated. So that is one facet of you know, managing gout. The other is to actually deal with the underlying cause of gout. Everyone who has gout has an excess of a crystal called uric acid. We all produce uric acid. As long as we're alive and we have ourselves turning over, the, one of the end products of cell breakdown is uric acid. So some people make more uric acid than others. This crystal is passed out through the urine, so some people don't process it as efficiently. 
So you have what we call overproducers. Those are people who make excess uric acid. And then you have those we call under-excretors. So those are people who are not passing it out in the urine as efficiently as they could. And of course, these are not mutually exclusive groups. You can have someone unfortunate enough to be an overproducer as well as an under-excretor. So treating the uric acid burden by lowering it is the best way to prevent and treat gout. And again, our guest this morning with the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System, Dr. Olajade, and he is a rheumatologist. And I'm curious, is there any relation between gout and things like kidney stones? Yes. I'm, I'm glad you asked that, Scott. Yes, absolutely. So even though we're talking about gout as a form of arthritis, gout can affect other um, parts of the body, including the kidneys. So we can have crystals of gout deposited in the kidneys, and they can also form stones in the kidneys. So yes, absolutely, we can have uric acid stones in the kidneys as part of gout. Um, uric acid can also deposit in the bones. It can also deposit in the skin. So these are other ways that gout manifests itself, but we usually address gout mainly as an, a form of arthritis. Now, obviously, kidney stones and gout, both no fun to have. I've heard comparisons for those who've had kidney stones, almost like birth pains. Is it that bad with gout? Is it equally equally as painful? Uh, yes, absolutely. I fortunately have not personally experienced it, but I have treated so many patients with gout, so many patients um, who've had kidney stones, either from gout or from other causes, and it is exquisitely painful. And of course, I've had the fortune to treat ladies who've been pregnant, have had kids, and yes, that comparison is very apt. It is extremely painful. Man, that sounds rough. Dr. Day with us today with the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. And on this subject of gout and kidney stones, all that stuff, are there just during routine blood tests, for example, are there signs that will show up during blood tests that say, you know, hey, you are someone who could possibly come down with a case of gout or kidney stones? Yes, and that's a great question, Scott. As I mentioned earlier, the culprit in gout is a crystal called uric acid. So everyone who develops gout has a high level of uric acid in their blood. Interestingly, not everyone who has a high level of uric acid in their blood, a condition we call hyperuricemia, goes on to develop gout. So um, to answer your question, so people who have a high uric acid level in the blood, who also have other conditions, are at increased risk of developing gout. So, for instance, if they have a uric acid level that is um, in double digits because normal levels are below six for females, below seven for males. So anything in double digits increases the risk of developing gout. People who have underlying 
kidney disease who have a high level of uric acid have an increased risk of developing gout. Males are affected way more than females when it comes to gout. And things like genetics, which we know are very strong, can also play a role. So if uh, you have a patient in whom you are doing routine testing, they have a high uric acid level. If they have a parent, a sibling, a cousin who have gout, then they have an increased risk of developing gout. So these are some of the things that can increase the risk. Other things include medications. So many people have high blood pressure, for instance. They are treated with medications referred to as water pills or diuretics, and these medications can increase the risk of hyperuricemia, which then goes on to increase your risk of developing gout. Diet also plays a role. So there are certain foods that are high in purines. Purines, remember I mentioned earlier, we have in our cells, and purines get broken down to form uric acid. So there are certain types of fish, like tuna, that can increase uh, your uric acid level, shellfish, um, processed meats like bacon, organ meats like liver and kidney, and then alcohol intake can increase your risk of developing gout, and then consumption of juices that contain high fructose corn syrup. So these are all things that can increase the risk of developing gout. Now, I, I know you mentioned alcohol intake can increase that risk of gout, and I'm guessing that's where so many years ago the old joke about how sailors would come down with cases of gout more so than others, especially those at sea. Is that is that where that originally came from? Uh, yes, that's where that um, came from. Uh, it's interesting you should mention that as well because um, sailors... Um, where the ones in whom the disease called scurvy was first described. Scurvy is a deficiency of vitamin C, and we know that intake of vitamin C helps with lowering gout risk. So if you're at increased risk and then you're using alcohol, which can increase the risk of having a flare of gout, then, as you can imagine, you will um, find gout um, more in this group of people like sailors so yes that's where that came from interesting now going back to how gout does present itself within blood tests are these just regular ordinary blood tests or if somebody listening let's say they have a doctor's appointment coming up do they need to specifically say i want to find out if i am somebody who could possibly get gout? Do they have to ask for that blood test, or are these just basic run-of-the-mill blood tests that doctors do on an annual basis? That's, that's a great question. So it depends. So at the uric acid level, uh, you can find in some routine blood panels, um, so it depends on the health system. But speaking to your doctor about any concerns you might have um, will help to make that diagnosis. The way to actually make a diagnosis with 100% accuracy 
is to be seen when you have an acute attack. Remember I said when you have an acute attack, you have rapid buildup of fluid in the joint. So you, um, if you're presenting during an acute attack, the doctor will take fluid out of that joint. It serves two purposes, removing the fluid, reduces your pain so it's a form of treatment but removing that fluid also gives us an opportunity to test for uric acid crystals in that fluid so that is how to diagnose gout a hundred percent if you were to test their blood during an acute attack because they the body is releasing um, certain chemicals uh, steroids in particular during an acute attack, the level of uric acid in the blood may actually be normal. And that is how many uh, diagnoses have been missed because someone who's having an attack that looks exactly like gout, the provider thinks it's gout, and they're testing their blood at that time to confirm the diagnosis. If the test comes back within the normal range, then they'd say, Maybe you don't have gout after all, but that is usually wrong. So the way to diagnose it with 100% accuracy is to obtain fluid during an acute attack from the affected joint and identify uric acid crystals in that fluid. Again with us this morning, Dr. Olaja Day with the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. And uh, we've been talking about gout. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I guess I did not realize that for somebody who is in the middle of an attack with gout, you could actually withdraw some of that, that blood that is, I guess, built up in the affected area. And that does help to relieve it somewhat right then? Yes, absolutely. So again, if you just imagine uh, 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 a sack that you're rapidly filling up with fluid and you're stretching that sack and you have nerve, um, nerves in those, the, the surrounding, you're stretching those nerves and that is why you have that exquisite pain. So if you relieve the pressure by removing the fluid from that sack, you can imagine that the pain level will go down considerably because you are no longer stretching those nerves. Uh, interesting and it sounds like one of those things that you could instantly help somebody with it right away and and i'm curious how many patients would you say visit your office maybe each month that actually have a case of gout so that is a great question i would say uh, at least five percent of my patients have gout so remember because it's it presents usually acutely. It's um, in urgent care settings, in emergency rooms, that these people can get the care as quickly as possible. Obviously, if you've had built up a relationship with your uh, provider, so for instance, if I have a patient who has a known case of gout, they have an acute attack, they call my office, and we speak, and we say, this sounds like your gout then we can do something to treat it right away. So we can treat them with steroids, we can use a medication called colchicine, and depending on the location, then we can get them into the office same day, then withdraw fluid if we deem that necessary in addition to using medication. 
Now, is there any age group that is hit harder than other age groups with gout, or could this happen literally at, at any age? That's a great question, Scott. So remember I mentioned men are affected more than women. So men develop an increased risk of gout right from the time they hit puberty. Women don't have that increased risk develop until they hit menopause. So estrogen, the female hormone, is protective. So you can have a male less than 20 years of age present with gout. If you have a female less than 20 years of age present with symptoms suggestive of gout, that would be very unusual. So you'd have to think about other things. Remember I mentioned genetics earlier. So if they are, um, you know, one of those people who have a family history of gout, then even though they're a young lady, you still have to think of gout. But generally speaking, you can have gout earlier in males and much later in females. So it sounds like, uh, for example, a female who is 40 plus years of age, had her ovaries removed, maybe due to a mass, due to a tumor, because it seems like we hear more and more about masses being found uh, within the ovaries. They could all of a sudden be more susceptible to things like gout. Yes, absolutely. Man. What what are some of the other, I guess, problems that you are seeing more and more of today that maybe you didn't hear as much about in years past? Um, in relation to gout? Well, in gout or really anything under that umbrella of rheumatology. Oh, we have, you know, new diseases been um, discovered all the time. So as you mentioned fibromyalgia earlier and uh, today as compared to you know a couple of decades ago we have a much better understanding of fibromyalgia and um, we know that you know as a physician listening to your patient is always the best way to help them and we've uncovered many conditions that have previously been lumped under the topic of fibromyalgia um, just by doing that in the field of genetics with the advances that have been made over the years there are newer syndromes and diseases that have been described over the last few years so yes we are seeing new things um, in this day and age as compared to a decade or two decades ago you know, it seems like in as little as 10 to 15 years ago, fibromyalgia was one of those diagnoses that a lot of people didn't understand, and it was not easy getting that diagnosis. Is it a lot easier to properly diagnose fibromyalgia today? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, fibromyalgia is largely a condition of exclusion, so it is a syndrome rather than a disease. So when you have different symptoms and findings, these comprise a syndrome. So uh, we can contrast that with what we've been talking about, gout, which is a disease. We know the underlying mechanism by which people develop gout. Fibromyalgia, they um it's like a final common pathway for many things. So people who sleep uh, poorly, for instance, can end up having 
fibromyalgia. People who have chronic diseases can end up having fibromyalgia. People who have, you know, symptoms like anxiety, depression, like the next speaker will be talking about, they can end up with symptoms of fibromyalgia. So it is very important to listen to your patient, to examine them before you make that diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Again, our guest right now in this uh, first half of the program, Dr. Olajide with the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. And we actually had a text. Somebody said that my doctor prescribed an antidepressant for me years ago for my fibromyalgia. And I know we do have somebody coming on the second half to talk more about mental health. But is that still normal today to prescribe some type of antidepressant for fibromyalgia? And, and what types of... Uh, medications outside of antidepressants are given to somebody with fibromyalgia yeah that that is a very interesting um question so there are three fda approved treatments for fibromyalgia now one of them is fda approved to treat depression as well and i'm sure that's the one they're referring to um although you you may have other off-label uses for other antidepressants the other two actually started life being uh, trialed for depression. So um, mental health and fibromyalgia certainly have a close link. We also know that physical exercise helps people with fibromyalgia. So it's a multifaceted condition. So to successfully treat, you need a multifaceted approach as well. Again, our guest during this first half of the program, Dr. Day, and he is a staff rheumatologist at the Nashville VA and assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. Have a great day. And uh, we thank our veterans for their service. And remember, speak to your primary care provider to get help with gout. It is very treatable. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Again, Dr. Olajadeh with the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. Make sure you stay with us, though, because we do have a lot more coming your way this morning on today's Action Line. More guests from the VA. So stay with us. We'll check on that forecast in just a second, and then we will be right back. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Do you suffer from peripheral neuropathy in your hands or feet, burning pain, balance problems, and a decreased quality of life? Magnolia Medical Center can help. This is Dr. David Morris with Magnolia Medical Center, across the street from the hospital and the Ascend Federal Credit Building. Online at magnoliamedicalcenters.com. We are broadcasting from the Middle Tennessee Electric Studios, and we are powered by Middle Tennessee Electric. And as a member of MTE, you have access to educational resources to help you tailor energy use to your lifestyle. Interested in electric vehicles as an example? Well, Middle Tennessee Electric offers initiatives to help you learn more about EVs and to connect with others who share that interest. Learn more by visiting Middle Tennessee Electric online at mte.com. Time again right now, 847. 
Here at Music World and Drummer's Den, we've got the best drum and percussion brands in the world. Ludwig, Gretsch, Pearl, Yamaha, Zildjian, Meinl, DW. We've got a great lesson program for guitar, bass, drums, piano, and more. Hi, this is Dave Kivanemi. Give us a call, 615-893-4242 to get started. Music World and Drummer's Den in Murfreesboro. 2762 South Church Street, across from Indian Hills Golf Course. It's Good Neighbor Events, brought to you by AmeriCare Pest Control, Cardinal Realty Solutions, and the Law Offices of John Day. It's time for WGNS Good Neighbor Events, and the TSSAA's Spring Fling is this week. In fact, many of you are staying an extra few days to take in the local fun. We welcome you to our community and hope you come back soon and bring some friends. Don't forget, this is the week for the Memorial Day weekend. And the Rutherford County Exchange Club is having their Healing Field Flags of Remembrance. 24 hours a day starting Saturday through Monday at 5 at First United Methodist Church. Now listen, the Junior Gardener Camp, sponsored by our local Master Gardeners, will be at the Lane Agri-Park Wednesday through Friday, June 14th through the 16th. For more information, call the Lane Agri-Park. Well, here's an interesting show at the Art Center of Cannon County in neighboring Woodbury. The Dust Bowl to Dance Hall, a story of American music. Yes, a vaudeville circus and a jug band review at the Art Center of Cannon County at 1424 John Bragg Highway. That's in Woodbury. And those are WGNS Good Neighbor events. This is Peter Demas inviting you to enjoy a meal with our family at Demas's Restaurant. With cold and flu season here, nothing helps my family more than having the Demas's baked chicken and rice soup. It was a soup that was created by my grandmother, and we not only sell it by the cup, but we also sell it by the quart, by the half gallon, and by the gallon. So stop by anytime today and bring soup to your family that may be sick or a friend that's in sick, or just to enjoy it just because it tastes so good. Demas's Restaurant. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now that time, 849, you're listening to WGNS again on this Monday morning today, the 22nd of May, and our guests today are from the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System, and on the second half of the program, we have Dr. Yumika Hankton, and uh, you are with the York VA Medical Center here in Murfreesboro, right? That's correct. And you're going to be talking about mental health, and I, I guess just starting off the conversation, how big of an issue is mental health just within medicine as a whole? Well, mental health is uh, exceptionally important because mental health influences how we think, how we behave, how we engage with others. Um, It impacts how we make decisions, how we manage stress. And so when we don't attend to our mental health and wellness, it can lead to the development of um, mental health conditions. So it's extremely important. And dealing with stress is one of those subjects that anybody out there can relate to. I mean, everything Mm -hmm. from, you know, your car not starting in the morning to uh, just having a complete mental breakdown because of 
stress after stress after stress mm-hmm. in your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are some things we can do to kind of battle that before those stressors become into things that really debilitate us? So that's a great question. I think intentional wellness, because you're right, we all experience stress. And I think a lot of times we think about the stressors that are considered negative, but there are positive things that we experience that can create stress, such as uh, purchasing a home, purchasing a new car, getting married. And so one of the ways that we can manage that stress is to be intentional about engaging in practices such as exercising, deep breathing, journaling, meditating, um, therapy, working with our our mental health providers to make sure that we have the necessary tools to manage those symptoms so that they stay moderate versus becoming uh, distressing. And exercising, that's one of those things that sounds easy enough to do, but I know it can be difficult to schedule time out of your day to actually do it. But things like walking each afternoon, I, I mean, as simple as it sounds, those help. Absolutely. Walking, stretching, you can do chair exercises. At the VA, we have a whole health program where where you can learn uh, Tai Chi, you can learn yoga. So you can learn various strategies to, um, you can learn different, I'm sorry, um, there are different programs that'll help you learn how to move your body in a healthy way based on um, any conditions you may be experiencing. Whenever people hear words like anxiety or depression, it seems like they're almost embarrassed to actually talk about those issues. But why is there such a stigma with, with things like depression? Well, I think it's really lack of understanding that anxiety, depression, stress are symptoms that we all experience for various reasons. And I think as we continue to have these important conversations about mental health and wellness, it will begin to decrease that stigma and maybe give others permission to come in and not just focus on their physical health, but their mental health as well. And when it comes to mental health, a lot of times folks who are going through mental health I guess, problems or issues in the current, they've also got some type of post-traumatic issue that occurred to them maybe years ago that they don't even realize, I guess, could be causing some of the current state in which they're in, some of the current problems they're having today. So there are various reasons why individuals develop a mental health condition, and it can be because of past events. What we know is that a lot of our veterans, while in the military or on active duty, experience some things that may have contributed to um, the onset of depression, anxiety, or PTSD. Again, Dr. Hankton with us today from the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System, and she is part of the Alvin C. York VA Medical Center right here in Murfreesboro. And here locally, what are some of the programs that the Murfreesboro VA offers when it comes to mental health? So at TVHS, we think about mental health as occurring on a continuum. And so we consider a veteran's uh, need, and based on their need, we provide them with the level of care necessary. And so if you think about, let's say, a pyramid with a lower level being uh, self-directed care, the next level would be uh what we call primary care mental health integration. And so a veteran maybe needing services could walk in and talk to their primary care provider and ask to speak with a mental health provider and they'd be provided with those resources on the spot. But then the next level of care is specialty level care. 
uh, care. This can include uh, BHIP, which is an intensive outpatient program uh, that serves veterans experiencing moderately severe to severe symptoms. There is the PTSD clinic, which specializes in the treatment of severe and complex PTSD. There's also ATS, which is addiction treatment services. And I know a lot of times when we think addiction, we think drug and alcohol use only, but this is truly addiction treatment services. Um, at the specialty level, there's also the pain clinic, there's um, Veterans Recovery Center transplant. And then the next level of care from that is RRTP, which is our res residential program. And so this is for veterans experiencing severe addiction and PTSD symptoms needing more severe um, treatment and stabilization. And then lastly, our inpatient. So if they're having active suicidal ideation or psychosis, um, they can they would receive inpatient services. But inpatient also includes our veterans who may live with dementia or are considered medically fragile. So Dr. Hankton, after that patient makes that initial contact with their primary care provider, they say, look, these are the things that I'm experiencing. And it may be a, a tough conversation to have because I know it's you know, that first conversation where you're admitting something's not right can be tough, especially for a man. But once they admit, this is what's going on in my life, I need guidance, I need help. Is it pretty quick on how the VA then works with that patient to get them to the right person? Yes. So once a veteran acknowledges a desire for mental health treatment to their primary care physician, the primary care physician will make a referral to mental health services. And again, based on the veteran's need, they will be routed to the proper level of care. But for primary for them to go into their primary care, it's a quick transition, a quick referral, because that doctor in the moment can make a referral to mental health. And while that person may think, you know, there's this huge stigma around mental health and some of the problems that come with mental health, that's not true in the world of medicine. Doctors who, who are there, they're seeing patients day in and day out who struggle with all types of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And when we think of quality of care, it must include mental health because the mind and the body are interconnected. And so if you're not focusing on your mental health, it can create some physical health concerns as well. And I know we don't have a, a ton of time this morning, but you were talking about all the different types of care for mental health related issues. And like you were saying, everything from addiction to uh, PTSD. I mean, it's all treated at the VA. Absolutely. And I'd like to say that mental health at the VA is top notch. So as providers, we are trained and invested in the wellness of our veterans. And so we train specifically to meet the unique needs of our veterans. But also many of our staff members are veterans themselves or staff members have family members who are veterans. And so there's a deep appreciation for veteran culture. So when you think about mental health services, TVHS is the best place for veterans to receive their mental health services or treatment. And for any veteran out there listening or maybe a family member of a veteran, I guess the best thing to do would just to be come in, just go there and say, this is what's going on right now. And, and I need help or my loved one needs help. 
Absolutely. So there are two ways that veterans can access mental health services. So the first one we mentioned earlier, they can talk directly to their primary care physician and that physician will get them connected to mental health services that day if they are receiving their primary health care services from the VA. But if they are not currently receiving primary care from the VA, they can still receive mental health services. And so all they would have to do is walk into what we call the MAC clinic, MAC MAC clinic. If they are in Murfreesboro, they would go to building 106. If they're in Nashville, they walk into the mental health annex. And if they're in Clarksville, they would go to the Clarksville CBOC and speak with the provider on duty and just say, I want to get connected to mental health services. Again, our guest today, Dr. Yumika Hankton with the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. And whenever we post this podcast, we will also post links and phone numbers and all that. So uh, make sure you look for that in just a little while. And we're already out of time, but thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Time right now, nine o'clock. You're tuned to WGNS. We do have more news and information coming your way next on WGNS, your good neighbor station since 1947. This is WGNS Murfreesboro.